Well, hey there. Welcome to the show. And this week's episode, it is a longer one. You might have seen that already. We are a touch over one hour in this episode. So I understand if you may listen to this in pieces here and there over time, or maybe go for a nice, beautiful long walk and listen in. But I promise you it is worth it. This is an excellent episode for my quietly ambitious working parents out there, as well as anyone who identifies as sensitive, empathetic, um, high self-monitor is a term you're going to hear in this episode because it's a conversation with myself and Amy of highly sensitive parenthood. And we tackle a lot of things that are common within our two audiences that have to do with overwhelm, with making career decisions and, you know, feeling the regret and the guilt that often comes up, especially for working parents. And we cover a lot of different yeah, tips as well as concepts that can be really interesting and also very helpful and even practical when we were working on overcoming things like overwhelm or or guilt or how to balance our own growth as well as our career growth, as well as being great parents for our kids. And spoiler alert, but towards the end, you'll get a whole conversation where we talk about these high expectations that we set for ourselves. And we'll have a conversation around that. So here it is. I know it's a long one, but I promise you it is well worth it for my working parents out there. All right. Enjoy. Well, hey there. I'm Liz St. Jean, and this is the Rise in Your 9 to 5 podcast, where I help quietly ambitious leaders who want to have meaningful and fulfilling careers, making an impact in the world. It's where strategy meets intuition to become a better leader with more joy, less stress, and endless impact. So let's break free from perfectionism, imposter thoughts, and that inner rule keeper that keeps you in a career comfort zone. It's time to become unapologetically you and step into the life you are meant to live. We're going to talk presence, productivity, and having it all. Or, as my four-year-old would say, we're going to take over the world. So let's get to it. We're here for a special fireside chat. I want to thank Amy. You were kind of the impetus behind that, but bringing us together. Um, so Amy, why don't you tell us about yourself? And then I can tell people myself, and then we can jump into some of the pre-submitted questions. That sounds great. Yeah, so I'm Amy Lagenis. I... Um, I'm a, a highly sensitive person, HSP, mom of two boys, ages five and nine. Um, and I have a couple of businesses. So one of them, um, one of the hats I wear is a therapist for highly sensitive and empathic people, um, as well as parents um, of all ages, of young kids, of pregnant people and parents of older kids. Um, and as part of that, uh, I was working a lot with highly sensitive parents and noticing how that uh, interacted, how those two traits interacted with one another. And so I also have a coaching and course uh, website called Highly Sensitive Parenthood that um, I've developed a couple of resources for parents of highly sensitive children and parents who themselves are highly sensitive. So kind of just supporting people who are empathic, highly sensitive, experiencing the world in different ways. Um, 
And, and yeah, it's a, it's a real passion of mine personally and professionally. So I'm, I practice out in California. Um, my coaching and HSP parenthood business is worldwide, but um, for my therapy practice, it's for California residents and that's inner nature therapy. Yeah. Awesome. And for myself, I'm Lynn St. Jean and I have the Mint Ambition. So it's a coaching, leadership, career coaching, lots of different things. Sometimes I say it's a Venn diagram of Renee Brown meets LinkedIn meets um, Sheryl Sandberg combination. So I do a lot of work with quietly ambitious leaders is the phrase I landed on. So we have a lot of people who are highly sensitive or empathetic or otherwise um, sensitive souls that are in my community because my community is filled with people who are, they are ambitious. They, they want, they, they do succeed and they want to succeed, but they're not the kind of person that wants to be really braggy about it or, you know, seeks the spotlight or seeks attention. You know, they want to feel appreciated, but not really seeking special recognition, you know, going to the stage in front of a thousand people. Rather, they want to do it kind of more quietly, um, modestly, gracefully. For a lot of the words that I hear from people, um, the biggest thing for me that I notice with my people is that they, they want to go into leadership for all the right reasons. So they want to do it because they want to make things better for others. Um, they've either had an amazing boss in the past or they've had a really difficult situation, like a very, um, a very painful situation, and they don't want others to have to experience that. So that's why they want to get into, into leadership. So at the same time, because uh, my community is quite sensitive and, and a term that I fell in love with that I heard from a Canadian psychologist years ago, I read his book, um, Brian Little is his name, um, is the term high self-monitor. So mm. people who are very aware of how they impact others. Mm. And so what happens is that the higher self-monitor is, they're very empathetic, very high EI, very high emotional intelligence and EQ skills. But they're also so attuned to it that it's very easy to start making up stories in our minds about <laughs> what others are thinking. And, and we're so often right that sometimes that you don't, you know, you can be worried. You make up, you make up a false story, but you yeah. also know that you're often right. That, mm. that can be a challenge for my community. It's also trying to be like, well, what if they are thinking about this about me? And they, and they might be right, right? You don't want to assume that they're wrong. But we're not always right in the stories we make up in our heads because yeah. our brain is very good at making up stories. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard people describe it or ask the question, you know, is this, is this my anxiety speaking or is this my intuition? And, and that is, I mean, there's not necessarily a singular answer to that question. I think it comes with discernment and, and listening and your own experience with that. But yeah, I love how you yeah. described your community. I think we have, we connected because there was some overlap, um, you know, definitely distinct niches, but um, like you, I, I do work with some, um, with professionals who ha have maybe come across some challenges working in, in a corporate environment or in these higher powered, higher level uh, jobs where their skills are maybe not quite as visible because of the environment. Um, still, absolutely invaluable and, and powerful and important, um, but maybe not, um, not as flashy as, as others might, might project out there. So yeah, I loved hearing more about, about that. So that's, that is how we connected. And I said, wow, I have had a couple of clients like that, a few clients like that as well, who are, for whom that is, um, a challenge. I, I and I love too, I actually haven't heard that, um, 
phrase, the high self-monitoring before, but that is absolutely um, something I see a lot of. And I, I like that it frames it frames it as a um, largely positive thing as well, but that we can get into trouble with it when we start letting letting the voices and the narratives of others crowd out our own intuition or our own needs um, and prevent us from setting those those boundaries and, and creating the life that we really need. So Yeah. It's very similar to, um, there's another concept that comes out of actually the political science arena, but I think it blends really nice to this conversation. And I'd be curious about your thoughts on the overlap with sensitivity as well. And it's the idea of hedgehogs and foxes. Have you heard of this before? No, no. Uh, it's a good one. It's, I can't remember how, like the book is in the 90s, I think it's from with Philip Tetlock, if I'm remembering correctly. It's been years since I read it. But I do, the concept always stuck with me. And the idea was that you know, he was looking at how people make decisions in the political arena, like political decisions. And what he found was that you could kind of group them people into hedgehogs and, and foxes. He says um, hedgehogs are the kind that they they have a belief and they basically never change their belief in the world. Like that's it's like the hedgehog, right? Little quills kind of pointing out. They just don't change it. And like no matter what information comes at them, they don't change. Like this is this is my view. This is what I know. This is what I decide. He said they're very good at making decisions in the sense that they do make them. Like they'll make them as they have a certain worldview. Yeah. Foxes, on the other hand, are always looking out for more information. And they always, they're actually always thinking that, well, if I, I need more information to make sure I'm making the right decision. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly seeking and seeking. <laughs> and he said, like, when they make, what, once they make a decision, it's a very good one. But it takes a long time to make a decision. Wow. Oh my gosh. I love that concept. That's so interesting. I was, I was almost thinking that hedgehogs were going to be sort of the more like protect self-protective and foxes were going to be more vicious, but it's, it's a completely different concept. That's so interesting. I do see a lot of the, the sensitive clients that I work with behave, I would say more like foxes, at least the ones that I see in, in therapy, the people who are like, who, who are really reflecting and wanting to work on themselves and wanting to work on their relationships that they are, they're taking in lots of stimuli, lots of information, lots of perspectives, and it can um, really crowd out the decision-making process. Um, I can think of several people I'm working with right now, honestly, for whom this is a a challenge um, to distill down what they, what is actually best for them, because there's so many perspectives, there's so many paths, and um, you know, one of the one of the aspects of being on a sensitive side for, for, for some people anyway, is really um, sort of processing things deeply and that is, is thinking deeply about, OK, well, what matters to me and really living an intentional life, having usually translates into like an intentional career for people who are doing that. Um, typically, people are not looking to settle for just like, it's OK, it's, it's, it's OK. No, they want something that's values aligned. They want mm-hmm. something meaningful and growing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the, even in the career search process, there can be people who get really stu- stuck or, or career redirection or, or movement moving around where well, I've heard this from this person, this person said this, and then this this program over here is doing that and this job, blah, blah, blah. And there's just, there's many pieces of information coming in. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing you've seen that in your work with people as well. And it can be um, really important to to find some ways to, at some points, make 
choices, like make a choice or start to, to narrow things down. And also to honor that, um, that our, our lives, our careers even are a work in progress that, that we, even if we decide, Hey, 10, 10 years down the road, I'm doing something completely different that often if we're staying aligned, what we do ends up sort of stair-stepping into the next aspects, the next, the next um, stages of our, our career or our life. Yeah. Yeah. There's another concept that I think about a lot. I share with my clients is like, well, one thing is I find that we often think of our careers and our lives as though it's like a book, right? Like there's a story. We want to make sure we're living the right story. So that can trip people up, right? Not wanting to make the wrong decision or something I'll regret. You know, they see it as like this, this story. And I kind of think, see it as a, do you remember the choose your own adventure story? Yes. Yes. I'm still around again. Those are my favorite stories. I feel like our lives and careers are a bit, we're like a choose your own adventure where, you know, you get to the end of a chapter and you make a choice if you go to that one and mm-hmm. you know if you fall off the cliff then you start at the beginning again like you can always restart like it's a little bit like a video game too right you can always restart try new paths and do different things yeah yeah oh absolutely I, I i use this image sometimes around um you know going down it's almost like the robert frost poem of two roads diverged in a yellow wood and I, I think we have you know kind of unlimited roads which can be un it can be daunting. It can be unnerving to to see that in front of you. But I like this image of the fox that kind of like sniffs, it kind of goes down one path. It takes some information from this way. Well, how does that feel? How does it feel to to consider that career path or that position or that responsibility? Ooh, I don't know. Mm, that's something's off about that. I'm going to use my senses, my intuition to kind of try this out. Okay, I'm going to go down this. Oh, but maybe I'm going to make it, a, you know, a right turn and get back to a different trail. So I'm also like an, eco- an ecotherapist, nature-based person. So I, I have lots of nature metaphors um, floating around in my head here. But yeah, I love this idea of the, of the fox and um, and not not having a fixed, you know, open and close career path. In many ways, it's much more exciting to for me to think about it as, you know, what's next. And I, I can choose. And, and even if this thing that I'm really feeling a lot of anxiety about doesn't come through, Oh, there's an invitation to 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 learn from that, to move to to something that maybe is a better fit. Um, but it, it can be really hard for people, I think, um, when they're stuck in them in, in that stressful situation to to see what it is that you're describing is that there's there's these paths. It's not a not just a prescribed book of what's next. Yeah. When I hear a lot about there's a couple of common emotions I hear people worry about regret and you know, yeah. making the wrong decisions. They worry about regretting. And yeah. sometimes I ask them, and I'd be curious to hear your perspective on this because it's kind of like it's a bit of a um, I don't know if harsh is the right word, but a bit of a like, oh, you know, cold water maybe is a better term question. Okay. But sometimes I'll ask them, like, well, you know, I'll say you know, light. Life is a series of choices. Like we, we are only at least, you know, until we transcend to become a higher being of some kind, like we just have the one person, this one timeline that we can be. So we can't do everything. We can't be everything. Yeah. So there will always be some kind of regret. Like there will always be because we can't do. And then I ask, well, you know, which regret would you rather have? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that cuts right to the heart of it, right? So it's, it's clarifying. So it is a... It's totally a bucket of cold water, but I think in a helpful way for people where I think when people are paralyzed by a decision, which I see happen a lot with 
people who are more sensitive or um, have that, you know, internal uh, awareness that's so strong, they get paralyzed in decision making. And and to be able to to say, I sometimes say something similar, like that if, either way, there might be a negative outcome, right? Choice A, choice B, someone, you or someone else might have a negative impact from making that choice. And you can focus on, well, what if, you know, what if I, this job goes badly? Okay. But like staying in your current job or career path that is not working, there's a negative to that too, right? So like not getting just stuck on the one regret of, of making the change, which often feels more intense or overwhelming for people who are a little more quietly sensitive. Um, but but noticing what's what's not working right now. Um, and, and that is something I, I do see people get stuck a lot and not wanting to make a change because of the unknown, um, because of fears of things going going off or making the wrong choice, as you described. Um, and, and undervaluing or under-recognizing what's not working or what they're regretting in their current position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and plus, I'm guessing the same for you. Like, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think like so, some people's fears are are not even necessarily like emotion. Like there's the emotion-based fears of like, oh my yeah. gosh, does it work out? And there's all that fear. But sometimes it's an ec- economic fear, right? Like yeah. I'm worried if I start making it, if I make a change, and especially if it doesn't work out, I'll lose my livelihood. Like, how am I, can I support my family? Like, there is a little bit of that undertone, especially what, whether it's um, real or not. Like, maybe they're yeah. um, in a position where it's very unlikely they would actually lose their job. But mm-hmm. still, that fear of financial security can be so, so real. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes people like that, so rather they, they, you know, asking the question of which regret would you rather have doesn't necessarily mean that everyone lands on, oh, well, obviously I have to go pursue this career. Like in yeah. some cases, people say like, you know what? I'd rather regret, um, I, you know, I'd rather be able to be like a little bit wistful but not taking it. But right now, security is most important. Yeah. Right now, stability is most important. Mm-hmm. And then probably the same for you as well. But then what we do in, you know, the coaching or you could speak better to if it's in therapy part mm-hmm. um, um, area as well then you work on like okay well how can we make things better where you are right now yeah oh right? absolutely yeah 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 boundary setting self-advocacy often you know recognizing your own strengths too that's that's often something that that people who are highly sensitive or uh, quietly ambitious as you call it are maybe not um, not see they're they're focusing on the negatives or or the, where they're falling short rather than really seeing all of the ways in which they are thriving or that they that all the ways in which they could be thriving if um, the sort of uh, the internal monitoring was just turned down a little bit in their own self worth and self care and and self respect or honoring it in their work was turned up a little bit more so just like finding that. The rebalancing that helps. Um, I, I know I've personally experienced this in my work as a therapist too, of kind of overextending at my own expense and then realizing like, whoa, 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 like this is out of whack. In order for this career to be sustainable, I need to to fix it, to to lower my caseload or to to take some more time for myself or whatever it is that needs to be rebalanced in order for for me to thrive in this in this job. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're really hitting on something. So my um, uh, one of my main programs I run is a boot camp, a leadership boot camp. It's called yeah. Rise Leadership Boot Camp. 
And, and it is, it's like about getting promoted without being loud or pushy. And the first part of it, a good half, maybe even a little bit more depending on how you calculate it, is like the introspection about what are your values? What are your strengths? What's the energy that you're bringing to a situation? And what I find is so powerful for people and like especially people on the more sensitive side is they just realize like, wow, like the strengths I bring to the table and my values, they're they're different than what I've seen promoted in the past. They're different than the the flashy, you know, look at me, look at me kind of style. And they start realizing that they've received messages in the past that they either need to change or that it should be, you know, um, other styles are more promotable. And I find such an impact where people can look within and they can say, oh, these are my strengths. This is who I am. And it may not have been seen and and kind of come to actually a place of compassion for past managers who just couldn't see it, you know, it's not it being angry, but it's not, you know, just realizing, oh, they just, they didn't see it. And that's too bad if they missed that. But, you know, I, this, this is me. This is who I am. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love that because it, it incorporates, you know, people's own self-awareness and their own, um, yeah, self, self-honoring. I, I love the word honoring, self-honoring. And it starts to move people towards, um, I would imagine maybe later in the program, there's, there's ways that people can can kind of advocate for themselves or to to help other people understand what their strengths are or, or where they're contributing that might be less visible than other types of strengths um yeah yeah that's so interesting but the, the internal work absolutely has to I, I think come first in order for people to uh or at least be concurrent in order for people to start moving their career in, in the direction that uh, feels good for them or to, to find the visibility that they that they're wanting yeah for sure there's a phrase i ran across so um one of the modules is i call it um, natural leadership competencies and we got we kind of dig into this and it's uh this phrase it was it said as within so without and I've, I've done, a, I need to keep doing more research because I have not been able to verify the origin of that. It's been attributed to lots of different authors. I would imagine, yes. Yeah. But it's the idea that, you know, what you create within yourself, that's what manifests outside. So it's getting a little bit into the woo concept. But in leadership, I feel, and um, it's probably the same with parenting, I imagine, too, right? Like, um, you know, and how we feel within ourselves that manifests outside of ourselves. And then I think, especially especially for the more sensitive or high self monitors, I was like to say too, it's like it's so important to have them to like go within first, that strength from within first before without, because otherwise it flips and it becomes so without as within, and we're letting the outside right. dictate who we are inside. Oh my gosh! Yes, yeah, so, so true. It's it's interesting. Thank you for bringing up the parallel with with parenting and um. And I, I've, I've seen, I've seen that with the career and the, and the, um, you know, work life, but I, I, it's so true with, with parenthood as well. And, um, in fact, one of the, one of my main courses, um, highly sensitive parenthood course is structured in a very similar way to yours. It sounds like we're the first, most of the courses is through the lens of how are, how are you? Like, it's actually not really about parenting. It's more about you, oh, that's you. so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the parent themselves and 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 not and beyond the role of being a parent as well. But it looks at your own 
safety values, your own self-care, your own identity that's not part of parent parenthood necessarily. Because in order to be a healthy, thriving parent, you need to tend to yourself first. And it's and it's really, unfortunately, in many ways, countercultural. And I've run into a lot of clients for whom um, doing that feels selfish. I hear that a lot. It's selfish to take care of myself. Um, if I don't want to be around my child uh, all the time, then like that, that's I'm a bad parent for doing I'm that. Like, person. Yeah. <laughs> Watching them have kids, like the, I wanted kids, and now I'm like I, I'm overwhelmed by them. Like that's messed up. Or I, I find my child overstimulating, and um, I feel so guilty about it. And mm-hmm. in many ways, that there's parallels with work, where like sometimes it's just about it's about balance, and it's about um, recognizing. I mean, I hit it over the head in the course, really about recognizing your strengths. So it's a similar framework almost, where where maybe people are coming to to both to us in our respective niches saying like ow like this is painful for me i'm not seen or i'm like massively overwhelmed um this something feels off and to be able to start from a place of saying uh, validating that and saying like yeah that is that is happening because this maybe the systems that are in place are not always very friendly to people who are that high self-monitoring, the HSP. Um, I know for, you know, in, in family life, um, I'm in the United States and out in California. And, you know, like there's there's a lot of pressures and families are spread out a lot of the time and people don't have the the support they need, they really deserve as as parents. And so um, so they they find themselves completely stretched thin and overwhelmed and feeling like there's something wrong with them. Whereas really a lot of it's systemic that like, you know, or our culture is not really set up to support parents very well, or especially working parents um, who are working outside the home and especially highly sensitive or, or highly ambitious people. You know, like there's there's some systemic aspects to um, to what's going on that I think are important for people to understand alongside their own um, awareness of of how the same traits and the same parts of themselves that are leading to some of this pain and and challenge are also huge gifts and strengths that should be celebrated and leveraged. And so starting from a place of reevaluating and kind of um, rewriting the narrative around who who they are, who you are as a as a parent or as a professional and and really validating your having your own strengths validated and and supported. That, that creates such a springboard for people to make the changes that they need to make, whether in parenting or, or work. Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes doing the both, right? Now that it's yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I guess we're coming towards like where we meet in the middle here is that you mentioned that some of your work is with parents and some of my work, um, even though I'm primarily with parents, a lot of the times it does go into work and work-life balance and being a, a professional who is sensitive or empathic. Um, so, yeah, I know we had some questions that people yeah, are wanting to know. Yeah, we did. I was just thinking that too. Okay, so here we've got the case. So this is a great one. So this is touching more on the parenting side. So my challenge of being a parent at HSP is the overstimulation of sound and touch for my little one. She wants to touch me and be held a lot more than I want to. And it can be hard not to react when she reaches for me while I'm trying to do something. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that one. I've I've been there personally. Um, honestly, that exact thing was probably the hardest, the single hardest thing about parenting for me. That exact the, the physical touch and overstimulation from uh, my my kid, my my children. Um, I, I think there's a, a couple things that I want to say about that. One is that that changes tends to change over time. I don't know how old this person's child is, but I know during the infancy and toddler stage, it was really intense, almost more intense during the toddler stage because infants are, you know, they're like, they're there, but they're kind of, they just lay in there, right? They're not <laughs> doing much. Yeah. Lot of, yeah, there's a lot of this like percussive, uh, like this or like tugging and yeah. um, kind of like not non-consensual in some ways, like, thing of your body which can feel really bad it can just feel really bad um and then with a lot of parents and myself included one of the biggest challenges there was um guilt over well I don't want to be irritable I don't want to tell my child to get off or to stop touching me so there there can be this barrier there and um I do think that that's when they're in that toddler stage there are some ways so I'm, I'm kind of making an assumption based on how this person described it that maybe they have a toddler or preschooler um there are some ways to positively state your needs for 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 physical space um and and some of that is about delaying so for example saying you know what mommy just needs uh my own space right now let's plan on cuddling in just a few minutes and you could set a timer you can say like here's our cuddle corner or or even setting some boundaries and this is Think of it as actually teaching them to advocate for their own personal space, too, and their own preferences. You're modeling that for them, right? So let's say you're at the stove. That's one of the ones that always got me extra overwhelmed is like open flame or, you know, (laughs) and they're coming up and they're they're needing attention and just naming, hi, honey, like, oh, I know I want to I want to cuddle you, too. Or like, I I know you want to read or you, you need something from me. Give me just a moment. If I can, if I just need a moment or, um, you know, why don't you go wait over here? And then I'll, I'll, when I'm done with this thing, I'll, I'll come um, cuddle with you. So kind of setting, starting to set some parameters, and even in terms of how you're talking about it, um, can be really important. Um, I, I do think one of the my biggest um, simple recommendations is just wearing earplugs if you have those. You can still totally hear your kid, you know. If you can't, then don't wear them. But you, usually you can. It's just it, the volume's turned down a little bit. And that can really, really help um, with the sensory overstimulation. I'm trying to think if I have any other quick tips on that. But it is really hard. And and I, my kids are older now. And that aspect of parenting has gotten a lot more manageable and, and less intense for me over the years. Um, uh <laughs> I, 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 a lot of HSP parents that I've talked to have, you know, take long bathroom breaks, go sit in their closet, go on walks. Um, so just finding these like micro breaks where nobody is touching you and, and doing your best to do those with as minimal guilt as possible, knowing that you are actually going to show up and be a quote, better parent, (laughs) whatever that looks like for you for having taken that time to, um, to, to kind of regulate your nervous system by by having your space uh, protected for a little bit. Yeah. 
And do you want to speak a bit too about the, um, I'm kind of pre-putting words in your mouth, but thinking about the, the self-compassion, like if someone does kind of, because they are, he, I'm not, um, they talked about reacting like, oh, I'm trying not to react, but you know, we're all human and we might have reactions and we might not feel good about them. I feel like self-compassion can be so important in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. I Absolutely. Self -com self compassion, knowing that, you know, a couple of ways to frame that that I, I think can be helpful or have been helpful for, for me and my clients around self compassion in this particular example. One of which is um, just because your child is, is creating overstimulation for you says absolutely nothing about how much you love or care for your child. And I think a lot of people conflate that and they, they think that, that, they, like I said, are, are a bad parent or that they are not cut out to be a parent or that they are somehow deficient because their child is a source of overstimulation. Um, it's kind of the same. Think about it as like if, when you hear like really loud. I used to have a dishwasher that made like the worst noise in the world. Like, and eventually I replaced it and got a different model. But it wasn't that my dishwasher was bad or that I like was taking bad care of it or that like I, I had any sort of feelings. It just the noise created it, it caused a physical sensation in my body and, and, and emotional reaction sometimes too. Um, when I became aware of that and and kind of disconnected, this is a, it's a little weird to compare a child to a dishwasher. I understand that, but like when you can disconnect that 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 the, the they are overstimulating from the fact that they are your child a little bit, it can help reduce some of that guilt that you are allowed to be overstimulated by your child. Like that's, it's, that's just a reality. Yeah. Kids are, they're noisy, they're sticky, they pull on you, right? Like you can fully love your kid and, and really dislike the noise that they make, the, the, the tugging, mm -hmm. the, uh, the textures, that so I, so I think it's important for people to to start to consider how they can separate out loving their child and not liking some things about just like the sensations that a child uh, uh, can create. <laughs> um, so there's a little bit of a distinction there. And then the other th the other idea here that I want to share is just going back to this idea of um, many of us are lacking that village. And, and don't realize that parents really are nervous systems are not cut out to be with children. I believe anyway, mine isn't. Our nervous systems aren't cut out to be with kids 24 seven. And a lot of us think that they are like that, that like a good parent, or at least that's this narrative that's buried deep for a lot of people that I work with is good parents like want to be with their kids all the time and want to be like really active and playful and like interactive with their kids all the time. And if we think about much of human history, we lived largely in you know villages and communities where our child care was shared across many different people and we were with our kids all the time we had siblings taking care of younger siblings we had cousins we had aunts we had grandparents who were there and we weren't with our kids anywhere close to 24 7 um and so just recognizing that as i said earlier there's some systemic factors that really kind of are um making our lives quite a bit harder as modern day parents, many of us, I think that can help to build some self-compassion too. Just this that mm -hmm. perspective shift that like, I'm not suddenly deficient. I'm not deficient because I don't want to be with my kid all the time. I'm not, there's not something that's wrong with me because 
I find my child to be overstimulating. Um, you know, it's okay that I feel this way. And and really to know that once you start accepting that, I mean, I've seen this over and over in my own experience and with clients that and you start to recognize, hey, I actually really need this amount of quiet time or I really need to go outside and take a walk and and realizing how much better you feel and how much more you can show up to be the parent that you want to be. It starts to become easier to be self-compassionate and to make self-compassionate choices to, um, to you know, as a parent, as a, as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So they had a, a follow-on question that sort of links, but links over into the work side of the world. Okay. And I'm looking for how to gear into or gear, get into work mode quicker. It takes time for me to unwind from mama mode into work mode. So tools for transitions throughout the day. Okay. So I have kind of a quick tip that that I have found really useful and I've shared with others before that people have found useful as well. I wanted to share with people. Yeah. And it is, um, it involves a grid. <laughs> so we think of like grid paper. I used to do this like just on, on Word. I would kind of create a table and print. I would, and I would print it off so I could hand write it. There's a lot of, there's really interesting research about the connection between like mind-body connection when you get off your computer and onto like physical paper using your hand you're kind of you're connecting your mind and your body together in that moment it's kind of like again it's a little bit more on the woo side and I'm a trained economist so I I bring up all these woo things full well having been trained as like science social science anyways the economic oh yeah yeah I I hear you I love that I love I I'm an egotherapist and it has the same sort of vibes where people are like oh like tree hugging and stuff and I'm like oh but the research you just have to read all the science the research is so fascinating. Yeah, the, the, the terpenes in the air, the, the, how those impact our nervous systems and how, yeah, how, how there's studies about how, you know, green space it increases our ability to concentrate and focus and retain information. Anyway, so like I'm right there with things <laughs> on the surface. Yeah. In fact, are very much based in scientific research. So yes. anyway, go on. Yes, <laughs> we can completely have a different conversation. We nerd out about the research and yeah. Um, so so I do recommend it like as a table. And what you do is you, you come up with a set of really simple tasks or things to do that basically start your day. And I mean like really simple. And what you, you're essentially doing is coming up with a set um, routine, but you it's almost like this like morning ritual that you do. And like first thing would be turn on the computer. Like, mm. Literally that simple, right? And actually the turn on the computer one is something I don't even think it was until preparing for this that I really thought about. It means you turned off your computer the night before. You didn't just put it into sleep mode. You actually turned off your yeah. computer at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So that, which is important for the end of the day, but also in the morning, the reason you want to turn it on instead of just wake it up is that that is part of the ritual. That that bit of time it takes mm-hmm. to start up, then you might do like, position you know like position your chair like let's say if you're at a sit stand desk position your computer um well what are some of the things like that it's it's not check email check email does not belong on this (laughs) list at all you are not allowed to check your email until you've gone through the list Mm -hmm. Um, it might be make coffee that might be part of the ritual what's once you're like this is my get into work mode ritual yeah make a coffee um, and what I really recommend for a couple of reasons, but it actually kind of leads into productivity side of things, 
is you set your big three. What are your big three, your top three things that you're going to get done that day? Mm. And you, and again, you're doing this before you check email because oh. you want them to be your priorities, not someone else's. I love that. Yeah. And so, you, so you come up with four or five or six and just having it alone is enough, but I like the grid and the check and the checks or check boxes. Like, so you, how you do the grid is you, you have um, enough space on the first column, like the left column where you can write out your, your okay. things you're doing. And then the rest of the grid are basically spaces for check boxes. So they can be much narrower um, columns and, and rows. And every day you check it as you do it. And especially when you can in your, it's almost like in your mind, you're like, I am starting I am going into work mode. Mm-hmm. I'm going, and it's kind of, there's a bit of a rhythmic nature yeah. to it. There's no thinking involved. You're just, and you, you just, you, you, you use it. You don't just do it. Mm-hmm. You use it to mm-hmm. get into work mode, if that makes sense. So it's not yeah. just the, it's not just the act of it, but you're using it intentionally. Like you're being mindful about, mm-hmm. I am now getting into work mode. Mm-hmm. And okay. then you've got your big three as your last thing. You set your big three and whatever system you have for that. Like I would always have a journal with, and just like, I'd have a journal literally like every day I'd have a big three, big three, big three. Mm-hmm. And that was my set of, of three things I would get done that day. Wow. That's, I, I've never heard of that system before, but are they grids, but I think that's really powerful. And, and I love that you brought up this idea of the routine. And I think that tends to serve you know, the people we work with really well is to kind of have this um, prescribed, but but very intentional and, and thoughtful and, and aligned routine that helps to not only to kind of help to organize this, but to signal to our brains and bodies, hello, now you are transitioning to this role and it's rhythm of your day. And um and it's really, I was thinking as you're describing turning off the computer versus putting it to sleep, that reminds me of during the pandemic um, when, when at least down here in San Diego, we were all like, we were everyone's working from home, like off people's offices were like in their bedrooms because space is tight. And it was, it was a madhouse, you know, people had re- cons for work-life boundaries for everybody, but especially when there's space challenges and kids and that kind of thing. Um, you know, when I would, I'm in my home office right now. And when I would, I can actually hear my kids out there right now. But during when we're all together all day, it really was like, there was no buffer time. And that, that buffer in between activities is actually pretty well documented that people who are more sensitive um, need, like absolutely need for our cognitive health, that buffer time. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, and and so I would I would advise people to do exa- that exact thing. Close your computer, and if it's a room that is a multi-purpose room, put it away, put it in its case, put it in a closet, and close the closet door. Or if it's in a in an office, close your office door. Um, you know, put your desk away if you have a desk that can fold up. Whatever it is that you can do, clear your desk off. So, kind of create this physical. There's almost like a physical aspect of. Also, the, the wind down, that's often what I have focused on more with people. So I like that you, t- you took kind of like the getting into work mode, but I've, I've talked with a lot of people about, well, how do you transition from, you know, this, like being on with, with 
clients or coworkers or doing your work tasks. And then all of a sudden your kids get home and or you have to run, pick them up. And it's what about dinner? Okay, homework and cleaning out the backpack. Blah, blah, blah. There's all these different things that are going on or that you need to attend to with younger children as well. Um, and I think it's so important to have that buffer time. If you can, as long as, long as you can reasonably take, it's, it's great. For many people, it feels like they can't take more than like five or so minutes. Even taking that to, like you said, put away, put, turn things off, put them away. If you can, um, another couple of little tips I have is like listening to a favorite song, um, taking a, a brief walk. If you can, that can really help reset. Um, watching a quick, like funny video to kind of like create a little separation between kind of your fixation or your thoughts about whatever was going on in the workday and kind of signal that there's a transition. Um, so I, I think I think having that time and a lot of us who are working from from home or working remotely at this point, we've almost lost out. I actually read an article about this recently about how losing commutes has some negative impacts as well, that we don't have that that period period of time, especially working parents don't have that period of time to um where they're like kind of in this like neither here nor there responsibility. They're just kind of they can listen to a podcast, they can have silence. Um, and I've noticed at times when I had longer commutes, I've actually had a lot easier time with the transition versus like a really short commute between my work and a kid's daycare or something like that. So just something to think about. Yeah, that makes actually the thing about the commute, like the difference between the transition, the imagery that comes to my mind is like a sponge. It's mm -hmm. like we're so squeezed all the time. You need those. You need the. the periods and give yourself that space for the sponge to come back out recognizing like you know we're gonna have that squeeze like that's a part of that's kind of a part of life right depending on what we're doing for most people there's there is that stress like there's a, and again with the research there's a lot of research that you know stress quote isn't necessarily a bad thing it's the too much stress and no recovery from stress and and or and going well beyond what we can handle Stress just, you know, like the right amount of stress keeps us sharp, keeps us on our game. We get, we can do things. We also need to recover. And like that's that spot when that sponge has a chance to kind of come back out and, and expand again. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, that metaphor, that symbolism. And I think in, in general, people who are, you know, really aware of this high EQ, like you talked about earlier, our sponges tend to get squeezed more by what's going on around us right so um so at least in, in, in my field there's um uh, yeah as a therapist there's actually some groups and some people who work with highly sensitive therapists and many of us we just have learned through experience often harder and wisdom that our caseloads just have to be smaller and we can't see you know five people back to back and then another few people not after like we we just can't we don't function. We can't, we can't function doing that. And so it looks different for different people, but, you know, spreading out meetings or, or trying to do a, a four day work week or whatever, it looks different, but it's, it's really noticing like, oh, people who are in this field who are not as sensitive or not as um, tapped into EQ, you know, they can see more people. And it's 
slow squeezing of the sponge. But for us, it's like, whoa, like it's a little bit warp speed. And then we need to really account for that that buffer time, that recovery time. Um, it's yeah, it's critical. It's absolutely critical. And it, it's not it's not a luxury, but it can feel like it in a culture that I kind of use it as a luxury, kind of kind of use it as a, a privilege in many ways um, to have have the time or have the flexibility flexibility to recover. Yeah. Well, and especially where we have so many stories and narratives about people rising to the occasion and perseverance, and like we we really glorify that that hard work and overcoming. That I think it can be so easy for people to feel like, well, I should be able to handle this. Like, why, you know, it, it, you know, you, I don't. And maybe you don't even see your colleague needing it as much. So you can get into that, that comparison game a bit as yes. well, which can be tough. Yes. Um, you said something that actually segues really nicely. And I know we're running kind of close to time here, but I've got, this is a, a great question I thought for a lot of people. Because they said, how fellow HSPs manage the overwhelm with work and then in brackets, leading a team and home demands in brackets, raising two toddlers. Yeah. Yeah, so we had another question too of someone who had three young ones. So yeah, especially having multiples. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, very that's a that's a very real challenge. Mm-hmm. Both being more sensitive, whether high self monitor HSP in this case mm-hmm. in the workplace leading a team, and then also balancing at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll say on the work piece, and I'll let you uh, mm-hmm. chime in on the home piece. On the work piece with the overwhelm, so there's a, a little bit of. Um, you know, if this person was here by asking more questions, but what was leading to the overwhelm, we probably like tease out a bit, do a little bit of coaching. But um, so my answer would be a little bit more generic in this case. A couple of things that come to mind. One is um, what I've noticed for a lot of people, and this is especially for sensitive souls, is that we can take on a lot of other people's challenges and difficulties. Like we feel it ourselves. So part of it's figuring out for yourself, like, okay, how can I be there for my team and especially over the last few years it's been it's hard it's been really hard to to lead and be a, be a strong manager in, in, over the pandemic um but so how can i support them be supportive while still protecting my own energy or or how can i what are some ways that work for me to it's like a sponge piece to kind of come back from it so figuring out what works for you and especially if you can find ways that you know work for you fairly kind of quickly. Like, you know, if you if you are so lucky to have trees nearby or a park, because I'm with you on that, Amy, mm-hmm. like if you can get just get out for a walk and, you know, you've just had a really difficult conversation with an employee and, you know, you need to take like take that time. That is so critical. Mm-hmm. So you can that sponge can can go back out. Or as I have one client well, that her empathy bucket, she said, my empathy bucket is empty. It's like, so we need to figure out, okay, how can we refill it? But also making sure, okay, like, are there, are there holes there that you can, that we need to patch up? So that's that protective piece. So there's that. Um, the other piece I find for a lot of people is that um, between both sensitivity, but also this is just very natural in the workplace is that um, we also want to solve problems for other people. So we don't just take all their problems energetically, but we actually try, we actually think that our role is to solve because of well, I'm the manager, I'm supposed to know, or that's what you've always seen. You've always been told by your boss what to do. So I re- highly recommend getting some coaching skills in there, like coaching for managers. There's a great book called The Coaching Habit. Very great, very simple um, approach to coaching. Or um, the the one minute uh, the new one minute manager is another great book with some coaching. 
And basically you get this, you have a, you, you develop the skill to help your employees solve their own problems. And it happens to the, it, it takes a little while to develop a skill and to get your employees used to it. But once you get it down, you don't have to take on their problem okay. because they're solving their own problems. And, okay. So you really, that's like one of the most critical skills, not just for like, in this case, it helps you with the overwhelm. So you're not taking on the problems, but it also makes you a much better manager, a much better leader because you are then supporting people and yeah, you're still a manager, you're still a supervisor. Like if they're coming up with solutions that you, that they can't do for whatever reason, like, you know, for whatever reason, can't do it, then you can step in, you can put on your supervisor hat on again or your manager hat and, and work on um, teaching yeah. them. But that's a teaching role versus a coaching role. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that. And then the other piece is, is and this can be hard. I completely acknowledge, especially for our HSP or sensitive folks is is um is advocating for your team seeing what you know is your team or are you taking on too much do you need to go to your senior leaders your senior management and have some honest conversations some really candid conversations you can go to them you just see what your role is like what they're going to expect from you is that you will sit down and look at the work like i'm looking down at my desk is it like you're going to look at your actual work look at your um you know the support you have from both your team as well as outside your team and just have a realistic sense of what can be done and then prioritize like in your mind, like here are the priorities, here are the things that we don't, we can't do right now. And then you go to your senior leaders and you say, okay, here's the reality. Like until we have more support, here's what we can do. We can't, we can't deliver on these other things. Yeah. And they, in some cases, they'll disagree with you, flat out agree. And a lot of other times you're going to find out, no, 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 that they want a bit of a cough here. They're going to ask you, they're going to tell you what their priorities are a little bit different. And you're going to reprioritize some of those. Mm-hmm. But that's a really, really important skill. And I completely acknowledge it's a hard one. Like it's a tougher one and it might be depleting as well. But really, really critical skill. Mm-hmm. Oh, those are all so, such valuable um, tips. I, I love all of those. And I, I do think that that self-advocacy piece or that prioritizing or recognizing, oh, I can't do it all. And, and I might not deliver on something that somebody wants me to deliver on that that is that can be really sticky for for some of us um but but I wanted to go back to that and kind of draw a line between work and and parenthood with the second point you made around being a manager and really making sure you're if that is your role in fact that you are focusing on whatever that whatever that role is and maybe maybe you're not a manager maybe you're a teacher maybe you're a therapist and maybe you have um a specific role. The, the, the important thing is you have a specific role, right? But let's use this idea of a manager. And and you bring up a great point that a manager, the manager's job is to manage. They're executing on something, sure, but they're not um they're not taking care of like the lower level tasks, right? They're not always executing on these these all these small little discrete tasks. Um and one thing that can happen uh in in for for parents and especially for mothers is that they end up not always but but a lot of the time they end up taking on the managerial tasks of of parenting which are increasingly complex in today's world right we have yeah volunteering we have kids sports we have extracurriculars we have homework we have you know uh, expectations that will um support our kids with with therapies or other types of um things that they might need so really, there's a there's a complex 
the even just managing the family, thinking about meal planning, uh, switching out kids' clothes decently, all these different things, right? So there's there's the, all the logistical planning, and then there's actually executing on those tasks. And and often, uh, I mostly work with women. Often the the women who are working professionally are unfortunately still taking on the bulk of both the managerial and the execution of the tasks. Even if even if their partner is really willing and they're saying, oh, no, we want to split things 50-50, they still are not accounting for the kind of the managerial work that takes place around, um, you know, keeping the household running. And and um, I, I think it's important to to consider to, to really value that as as a role that 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 um sort of executive functioning and the the household manager role is real and legitimate even if it's not as visible to other people um and that said that especially for people who are working even part-time outside of that and even people who are full-time at home honestly but um especially for people who are working full-time outside the home and expecting themselves to not delegate any tasks of household uh, to other people is, I would say for like the vast majority of people, it's setting yourself up for massive overwhelm and sense of failure because there simply are not enough hours in the day to, in my opinion, to to work full-time outside of the home, to successfully run a, a household to the level that most sensitive people want to run it right? We hold ourselves to a high standard as parents, as creators of a peaceful environment at home. We want, we want, and, and on, honestly, we need, our nervous systems need for things to be relatively peaceful on the home front a lot of the time. We really benefit from that. And so um, I have a lot of the clients that I've worked with, and again, me personally, have had to make some decisions around, okay, how do I use my resources? If I'm working outside of the home, and contributing in that way, can I reallocate some of that to support me and my family and how things are run at home? And that can look all sorts of different ways. It can look like um, choosing to do like meal delivery services or um, meal kits. I've done that on and off during really busy periods. Um, Having people come help clean your house. Um, For newer parents, having like laundry service. And a lot of people really struggle with the idea that this is... um, that these things are a privilege. And to some extent, I agree with this. And I say, well, I, I feel bad. Other parents are not, don't have that luxury. They don't have that privilege. And there's a yes and, and that for me, it's like, that is true, but it does not mean that you, you just, you, you should just suffer and, and bear it because it, it's also not fair. Nobody should have to hold a full-time job and manage a household and execute all of the tasks associated with household and parenting. Um, so, you know, finding ways on the work front to reduce the intensity when that's appropriate and accept and, and, and accessible, and then also finding ways to reduce the workload on the home front. Um, if you're partnered, uh, having conversations with a partner, um, is often a really important part of that. That can take some time to, to recalibrate and to adjust, um, when I've worked with people on that. Sometimes couples therapy is helpful with that. Um, but often we, you know, we just need a lot more support than we think 
we do. Or at least that's been my experience. And, and when we start adding in some buffer time, when we start adding in some support, when we start saying, okay, I'm going to sacrifice a little bit on how healthy our meals are or how cheap my meals are in order to have some more downtime. That's just an example. Um, we realize actually that is that is how I want to allocate my resources of time, energy, um, money right now. And, and it can shift over time, but really just being honest with yourself about how to use your resources, all of those resources wisely um, in order to create as balanced and as stre- low stress of a life as you can during during the time when when you're parenting, especially young children and working outside the home. Yeah. Oh. Well, and that is bringing us to the end, but that was wonderful, Amy. Those were, there's so much in there and I hope everyone mm-hmm. who's been watching has really enjoyed this and taken away lots of nuggets for mm-hmm. both on the work side as well mm-hmm. as on the, the home side and, and especially realizing like how much we see you. We know that Doing, yes. Just like Amy was saying, like doing all of it as, you know, have all these expectations and sometimes just having a little bit of grace and realizing that, you know, things, it, it, it is hard and we see you and, it, and it's okay to um, ask for help and to seek out the seek out help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In many cases, it's it's critical for people to seek out help. Um, and, and yeah, I just have seen it over and over. People be resistant. And then once they do it and they make these shifts, they're like, oh. What, what didn't I do that earlier? This is, I, I needed this. Like I needed this to be okay. And so, yeah, if you're on the fence about it, I, I would say, you know, start small, um, whatever that looks like for you. Maybe it's hiring a babysitter to come a couple hours a week and taking care of your own needs during that time. Maybe it is uh, having, I, one of my sisters does like a pizza Friday and they just order pizza on Friday. So no one has to think about creating and making dinner at home or, you know, having a big cleanup. So it could be little things like that, just little adjustments and see how does that, what's the final equation of that? Like, is that, is that more beneficial, even though that maybe there's some trade-offs in there and just noticing, just being, be honest with yourself and honoring what you're needing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for this fireside chat, this casual conversation. Yes. It's been a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. I have. Thank you for inviting me. And um, yeah, people want to connect with me. I am um, on Instagram at Highly Sensitive Parenthood and at Inner Nature Therapy. And those are the URLs of both my websites too, HighlySensitiveParenthood.com and InnerNatureTherapy.com. And I'd love to uh, connect with anyone who is interested to hear more or looking for more support. Um, you can you can reach out to me via either of those websites um, or at Amy, A-M-Y at HighlySensitiveParenthood.com. Awesome. And for me, I'm at The Mint Ambition, uh, both on Instagram and same on my website, where you can also come find me on LinkedIn if you like. I like to share things around career on there as well. Um, yeah, we would both love to connect with you and and hear from you as well, what your thoughts were and what nuggets you took away. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Now, before you go, make sure you click to follow the show. This way, you don't have to go looking for the latest episode. I'll come to you. Just click the plus button or the follow and you'll get the latest episode fresh off the press. Thanks again. And remember that you are amazing. Now get out there and rise.